0: A new survey shows China leading the United States in favorability among developing countries. Hello, I'm Arnold Nido. This is The Heat. by the Centre for the Future of Democracy at the University of Cambridge shows that 62% of people in developing countries now have a favourable view of China. That's slightly more than those who view the United States positively. The report points to the impact of the China-led Belt and Road Initiative. It notes that in countries engaged with BRI, almost two-thirds of people have a positive view of China. Well, to learn more about all of this, joining me now from Beijing is Andy Mock, He is a senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Also with us here in Washington, D.C. is Abdullahi Boru Halake. He's an Africa security and policy analyst. With us, too, from Beijing is Zun Ahmed Khan. She is a research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. And from Sao Paulo in Brazil, we are joined by Gilson Schwartz. He is a professor of economics at the University of Sao Paulo. Welcome to all of you. And Andy Mock, let me start with you. So here we have the survey that was done by Cambridge University in the United Kingdom at its Center for the Future of Democracy. And it shows that China now has a marginally more favorable rating among developing countries than the United States. It's, It's quite a change from the situation that existed, what, just 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. Does it surprise you?
1: You know, Anand, it doesn't. Um, and I think, in a sense, this is inevitable and the beginning of a trend where we will see China's favorability rising all around the world uh, continue to rise. And here's why. Uh, there was a Russian psychologist named Ivan Pavlov who became famous for something called classical conditioning, uh, where uh, his famous experiment was uh, making dogs salivate when they hear a bell. And this is relevant because there's no country in the world uh, that is more conditioned, whose people are more conditioned through insidious uh, communications like advertising like uh, the United States. And then I'd say the Anglophone world is followed by that. And this maps very clearly to negative perceptions of China. But uh, this communication strategy cannot be entirely divorced from reality. So I think as more and more people around the world become directly uh, exposed and experienced to what China really is doing, uh, that this misinformation, these misperceptions will uh, decrease over time. And places, people in the developing world have been least exposed to this kind of Pavlovian conditioning. So I think this is why we're seeing this happen first in the developing world. But I am optimistic that the rest of the world will follow. So you see this trend
0: there, Andy, and you see that getting uh, bigger, uh, stronger, uh, more positive uh, for China.
1: Indeed, that's exactly right, Anand.
0: Abdullahi, China, of course, is heavily engaged in the African continent, mainly through its Belt and Road Initiative. Um, To what extent is China's economic and trade links with the continent driving these very positive sentiments about the country? Abdullahi, can you hear me? Okay, uh, we have a problem there. Let's go to Zun Ahmed Khan, who is in Beijing. Um, Zun, Pakistan's Prime Minister was in Beijing recently, uh, and we know that the economic and trade relationship between China and Pakistan has been growing. Uh, we've seen China support Pakistan uh, after the massive flooding that uh, took place there recently, and of course there was uh, financial stresses in China, which, in Pakistan, which China helped with. Um, how do Pakistanis, ordinary Pakistanis, see China?
2: Firstly, Anand, thank you for having me on the program. And I think definitely the visit of Prime Minister Shahbaz Sharif has been followed very closely in Pakistan and I would say also in Beijing. Uh, Speaking of the visit and, as you mentioned, Pakistan and China's growing economic relations, uh, for Pakistanis, uh, China is seen as an opportunity. The Belt and Road Initiative and China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, this manifests the basic requirements for Pakistan, from the energy infrastructure, trade infrastructure, we're talking about—sorry, uh, uh, the transportation infrastructure, special economic zones, Gwadir port. So all of that over the last—especially uh, post-2015—has been very transformative for our country. Then, obviously, you mentioned the flood, which, it, which has been devastating for Pakistan. And in that, too, China has been the country that stepped up the most. So for Pakistanis, of course, uh, when we see these massive developments—and on the other hand, uh, we also know that in the last 10 years or so, this wasn't the kind of uh, help, the kind of cooperation, the kind of investment uh, uh, coming in from Western countries. In, as opposed to that, China is the country that's helping Pakistan resolve its uh, longstanding issues and address the development uh, ideology, the development idea and trajectory that we want for our country. So I think um, what's important to understand, even vis-a-vis the poll that you just mentioned, is that for developing countries like Pakistan, what we think about are uh, our pragmatic needs. And that's where China is immensely stepping in and helping us address them. Another issue is uh, China is not ideological. Even the China-Pakistan economic corridor is about helping uh, our country enhance its capacity, create more jobs, and welcoming any other country to join and invest So, obviously, for Pakistanis, when they see the realities changing on the ground, multiple jobs have been created, even things like—we are talking about women empowerment and Mm -hmm. opportunities for women in parts of Pakistan that didn't exist becoming possible because of CPEC. So, long story short, I mean, obviously, the visit was uh, seen as successful. Um, There are major priority areas, including further uh, helping Pakistan attract investment improve our ability to develop our industry, and even areas such as vocational education, um, education, uh, developing Pakistani talent, uh, agriculture technology, climate change, resilient infrastructure, and let's not forget also uh, energy, which is uh, renewable and and friendly for the environment. So all of this, we see that in Pakistan, uh, the perceptions about China were always positive, But now we see that China is indeed extremely capable and willing to uh, meet Pakistan halfway and help us meet our development needs as well.
0: Okay, we can go back to Abdullahi. He is now back with us. Abdullahi, uh, great to have you back with us. We lost you there for a moment. Uh, we're talking about changing perceptions of China. And when we look at uh, China's relationship with the African continent, I mean, it's always had a close relationship. It's been heavily engaged on the continent, mainly through its Belt and Road Initiative. And to what extent as that relationship, the economic and trade relationship, uh, the cooperation in the construction of infrastructure and things like that, been responsible for this changing view of China.
3: Uh, thank you so much. Uh, apologies to the viewers. I think uh, one of the things that is hardly acknowledged is that uh, Road and Belt Initiative passes through 39 African countries. That is over two thirds of the continent. Secondly, Africa has got something around 150 billion infrastructure deficit. So when China comes uh, to, 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 the, to the African shows and all these countries are different, they're over 50 countries. So what China offers is it meets a demand now. No, It's not history. It's not in the future. It's a demand that is now. Are there challenges? Are there different ways of doing it? Yeah. But I think a lot of the time, when Western commentators uh, 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 talk about African-China relationship, it, it, it is it is uh, uh, framed as uh, a zero-sum game. What they lose, uh, China gains. When in reality, both can be on the continent providing different services and be able to uh, continue serving the same. But I think that the, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the road uh, um, initiative really helps in cementing China as a preeminent player on the continent now and going into the future.
0: And, Abdullahi, is it also a situation on the African continent where this relationship is not driven, as Zun told us a moment ago, by ideology? There's no uh, ideological motive behind it?
3: I think Unlike Western relationship with the with the continent, where it is conditioned on X, Y, Z, it's conditioned on you doing this. It's condition of African country doing X and Y. With the Chinese one, a the one advantage that this uh, sort of relationship has is there isn't, uh, su- uh, you know, quid pro quo in the sense that uh, we'll give you this amount of money, uh, therefore you have to do X, Y, Z, vote at UN, sec- uh, at UN General Assembly this, UN um, Human Rights Council this. So, and the fact that China doesn't interfere with internal affairs of most of these African countries then therefore makes it very easy. I just want also to remind the viewers that Relations between China and Africa predates the China-Africa Forum. That is it's own, on its 20, over 22nd 20 year now, I think. Um, even in the early independence era, China, that is in the 1960s, helped most of these countries with agriculture and health. And when issues around COVID, for instance, came up, China was there to draw on some of those historical muscles to be able to help the continent.
0: All right, let's go to Sao Paulo, to Gilson Schwartz, and talk about China's relationship, or at least how China is perceived in Latin America. Uh, Gilson, uh, China recently hosted an international import expo that, was, that took place in Shanghai, and, of course, Brazil had a big presence there. The Brazilian consul general uh, was there as well. We saw a wide selection of Chinese goods that were on display at um, this uh, exhibition. Um, you know, Brazil, of course is trying to expand its presence in the Chinese market. This is what the Consul General Marcelo Baumbach had to say. Let's listen to him.
4: China is really the most important trade partner of Brazil. And this is continuing, in spite of all the challenges of the current international order. This first semester of this year, for instance, uh, 29% of all Brazilian exports were directed to China. This is huge, and it gives you an idea of the continued importance of this trade relationship.
0: So, Gilson, when we look at China's major economic engagement in Latin America, and we also include those countries that are part of its uh, Belt and Road Initiative, um, how has that changed perceptions of China? Gilson, can you hear me? No, Jolson is not with us. Let me go back to Andy Mock. Uh, Andy Mock, let's look at the study again. It noted that Chinese favorability is especially strong among the 4.6 billion people in, living in the country supported uh, by the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, two-thirds of people uh, of that number that I was talking about now hold a positive view of China. So when we look at the Belt and Road Initiative, um, the way China has um, implemented it around the world, how much of a game changer has that been?
1: Well, I think it has been uh, truly a profound uh, development in the course of human history, Anon. Um, You know, some to put this in an Anglo context compared to uh, the Marshall Plan uh, that the U.S. implemented in post-World War II Europe. Uh, But this is much, much bigger, much broader in scope. And I think how it links to changing or improving perceptions uh, in the world of China is that, again, if you think about from a marketing business perspective, great brands are built from the inside out, meaning you can have a wonderful ad campaign blitz saying how great a company or product is. But if the product itself is inferior, that campaign is going to fail sooner or later. And I think what China is doing, as we heard earlier, Uh, is delivering real practical change to people on the ground uh, in the developing world, uh, whether that's through railways in Africa, uh, ports in Pakistan, uh, other projects throughout the world that people see directly of the good that China's doing. The other point I want to make, Anand, too, is that China occupies a very unique place in the world. Um, It clearly, in places like Shanghai and uh, Beijing, Uh, are, is very advanced on par with New York City, London, Tokyo. But at the same time, China is also a developing country. And it has a much more intimate understanding of the real needs of developing countries around the world based on its own experience. And I think uh, by bringing this uh, synthesized view, it really is able to play a positive role in the world. And uh, really, I think, shape people's perceptions. Again, uh, one can have a good advertising blitz, uh, but if it's not based on reality, sooner or later it's going to fail, whereas I think China's approach is taking longer, uh, but is ultimately more durable and will change global views, not just in the developing world, but global views uh, for the better over time.
0: Abdullahi, we were talking a moment ago about uh, the conditions that many Western countries, including the United States, attach uh, to things like aid, to the developing world, etc. And I'm wondering about China's approach to Africa uh, compared to the United States. I mean, in many places, the United States approach seems to have remnants of the Cold War in there. We look at the United States for instance, establishing military bases in many parts of Africa, uh, whereas you know China has no interest in doing that at all um, I mean is that a fair assessment
3: It is a fair assessment uh, in the sense that i always I always challenge people if you want to see who sees Africa as an opportunity and who sees Africa as a problem to be solved, just take the map of Africa, figure out where the United States has military bases, superimpose that on where China has got large-scale infrastructure projects, be it Belt and Road Initiative or any other, uh, other initiative. You'll be surprised. For the Western countries led by the United States, Africa is a problem that needs to be solved, and the solution is largely military. If not that, over the last 20 years, the United States wouldn't be investing tremendous amount of military bases spread across the continent. Number two, um, if you look at the African continent, over the next few years, by 2050, I think, uh, a quarter of the world's population will be Africa. That's something around $2.5 So if you do not see this as an opportunity, but rather see it as a problem that needs to be solved through a military means, then that creates a problem. And so I think for the Western policymakers, the, the earlier, including the United States, the earlier they see Africa as a policy priority and therefore developing policy, pr- uh, policy programs that can deal with daily realities of many African countries, the better. Because a lot of the time discussions take the form of, oh no, China is you know, loading debt on African countries. Guess what? The data doesn't support that. But if you look over the last four years, the United States did not have an Africa policy. The Africa policy just came out in the summer, two years after. And, you know, the China-Africa Forum has been going on for over 20 years. Today, uh, this December, I think the United States will convene uh, the Africa Democrat, uh, I think Democracy and Human Rights Summit. If today... African countries, particular leaders, are given an opportunity to either attend that or attend the China-Africa summit, or even the Afri- uh, uh, UN General Assembly that takes place generally in September. Most African countries will attend the other one because there is real, tangible benefit that is tied to that. That's not to suggest that you know there, there are no areas that you know Africa-China could not improve. But I think uh, it's fair to argue that. You know, whereas Western countries look Africa as a problem that can be solved through military means, the rest, uh, at least China for now, sees African countries as an opportunity.
0: Zun, when we look at China's relationship with the broad developing world, uh, sometimes referred to as the global south, is China seen as a counterweight to American power? I mean, we saw the absolute alarm with which many developing countries responded when the United States imposed uh, those very harsh sanctions on Russia uh, after the, uh, fe- after February 24th, when the um, Ukraine conflict started. Uh, and there was a lot of fear that that could happen to them as well if they don't bend to the United States' diktat. There was a lot of trust lost.
2: Hmm. I think, um, Anand, firstly, let me say this, that um, for the United States, uh, they, they seem to think that countries are not only um, likely to, but are seeking to choose one leader over the other. For countries like Pakistan, for countries in Africa, like, uh, like our other panelists very, uh, put it very well, um, we want cooperation and we want it to be pragmatic. For us to have positive views about China based on China's track record, uh, record increased involvement and positive tangible uh, interest and cooperation, Uh, That's great. And at the same time, if the United States or European countries can do the same, we will have equally and why not positive views about the US and their allies. Uh, That said, um, do do I think that China allows a counterweight? I think whenever you have a unipolar world, a unipolar world where countries have fewer options, they are easier to be coerced. And this isn't good for any country, any region, even if we study the Cold War. There were moments and there were phases where regional powers were able to leverage very successfully. For example, there was a point when Nasser of Egypt was getting uh, security and uh, strategic assistance from the Soviet Union, but also uh, food assistance from the United States. Countries, regions think about their own Mm -hmm. circumstances and their regional factors, domestic political factors Mm -hmm. that are affecting their decisions. That said, coming to your point, I think if China allows countries to have more options, the biggest contribution, in my view, that China has made is that we ourselves don't see our people and our circumstances as problems to be solved. And this is where I completely resonate with the previous panelists, mm-hmm. that FOKAC makes Africa an opportunity. CPEC makes us realize that Pakistan, any issues that we have to solve, they are part of the one thing that the world unites on, which is the SDGs. Our people, our resources, our opportunities. And another thing I really want to point out, I'll keep it short, is that in that report, you see that they're saying, oh, uh, 6.3 billion people from countries and regions that are illiberal and undemocratic they see this part of the world as a problem. And I think that is the real issue. We are not in purgatory or the waiting room of history. We see ourselves as evolving, as moving forward. And China gives us the opportunity to think of our development, our progress, our uh, solutions that we seek uh, in different lights and realize that there isn't just one path forward, but perhaps there are multiple successful models and pragmatism, Mm -hmm. uh, logical problem solving is the way forward. Thank you.
0: Okay, we are going to go back to Sao Paulo now. We have managed to re-establish our connection with Gilson Schwartz. Gilson, great to see you. Uh, we're talking about the relationship between China and uh, Latin America. I mean, we know that there's a close economic and trade relationship with Brazil, but China is involved, uh, or it's, its Belt and Road Initiative is uh, implement, being implemented in many countries in Latin America. And how has that changed perceptions of China?
4: Uh, I think we have two problems. One is political, and the other reflects or is related to the trade pattern, the structure of trade. Politically, we are moving forward, as we have elected President Lula, and the previous president was totally anti-China. So that was really a problem. We've been through very, very uneasy moments in this relationship. This is over. We are now entering a new stage, and for sure the Lula government will be more favorable in its discourse in its diplomatic relations, which will be more favorable to China. But the real key issue here is the trade pattern the The, the Brazilian diplomat that we have just uh, listened to is right when he points out the importance of exports Brazilian exports to China. but there is a problem here. the problem is the very high concentration of our trade pattern in only three products. Basically 10 of our export products account for 90% of our uh, exports to China. And now only three products, iron ore, soybeans, and oil account for 80% of Brazilian exports to China.
0: Jilson, apologies. We're having a problem uh, with uh, hearing you, so I'm going to move on. We will try and get uh, back to you. Andy Mark, I'm going to get to something else now, and the fact that China has been placing a great deal of emphasis on what it calls the Global Development Initiative, that peace and development go hand in hand. They go together. I mean, how significant is that as China actually tries to extend and expand its soft power around the world?
1: Well, I think it's very important, Anand, and I think it's important very to draw a distinction here that really is philosophical in nature. Um, there was a French Sinologist uh, named Marcel Grenet who said that Chinese wisdom has no need for the idea of God. And I think this really lies at the root of the conflict between the U.S. and China in that as we heard, heard from our other uh, panelists today, uh, the U.S. sees the world as black and white, good versus evil, with uh, itself, of course, on the side of, of good and wants countries to choose and will pressure them to choose. Whereas I think the Chinese approach, not just this government, but the, if we look through the sweep of Chinese history for thousands of years, uh, really has been guided by pragmatism uh, and the idea that uh, this is the only life we have and we need to make the best of it. So how does that translate onto the global stage? Uh, there really is little if no uh, energy devoted to saying to countries, you should adopt the Chinese way. Uh, it's really about making the world better in practical, tangible ways, through infrastructure investment, uh, through economic development, through trade, uh, through peaceful development. Um, and I think this really – is a a very profound difference in mindset that is very difficult and even very threatening for countries that view the world through a black and white prism. And again, I think this lies at the root of uh, some of the difficulties we're facing. But the reality, too, is that most of the world does not buy into this um, democracy versus authoritarian uh, way of looking at the world that really is just I think a flimsy disguise for uh, you know, a deeper view of the world that there is this legacy of uh, christian American Christian puritanical thinking right. uh, that is just wearing clothes and uh, hopefully we can move past that.
0: Abdullahi, I've only got a minute left, but I want to look at something else. You know, of course, we are fully aware that the United States has been engaged in a number of wars over the last few decades, wars that have caused enormous destruction, you know, refugee crises in many parts of the world, humanitarian crises as well. And uh, to what extent has that changed perceptions of the United States?
3: Indeed, I think uh, one, uh, just move very quickly, we don't have a ton of time mm-hmm. is, The war on terror really changed a great deal. Over the last 20 years, the war on terror and the way it's conducted, when on one hand the State Department tells people that we are for freedom, human rights and everything, and then you have the DOD and special operations conducting extrajudicial execution, egregious violations of human rights, including the overthrow of uh, Muammar Gaddafi, who was by any chance wasn't necessarily an angel, but it was a, a, a force of stability in uh, the Sahel region. Okay. East overthrow, we are seeing some of its consequences now in the countries surrounding Libya.
0: Okay, and we have to leave it there. Thanks to all of you for being with us. That was a great discussion. I just want to apologize again uh, to our guest, Gilson uh, Schwartz, uh, for our connection to Sao Paulo. We had a problem there. Our apologies to you, but thanks for joining us. I'm Arnold Nadu in Washington, D.C. This has been The Heat.